Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. All right. You okay, Jane? I'm good. I'm good. Let's podcast. Okay. Hello. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Here with me today, we have Ezra Klein, we have Jane Koston, and we would like to talk... It makes me sad, actually, thinking going forward. This may be one of our last opportunities on the weeds to ever talk about Paul Ryan, a a favorite subject of mine, uh, because he is on his way out the door in Congress. Um, And Ezra has written a a great Paul Ryan retrospective that I think is a a good starting point for conversation. So, Ezra, why why don't you let us know, like, what, what do you think, Paul Ryan? What even is the weeds if we can't argue about Paul Ryan anymore? I'm sure there is a podcast. <laughs> Have we ever mentioned Kevin McCarthy before on the week? It's going to be weird. That uh, tells you a lot, actually. All right. So um, I wrote a big uh, piece kind of thinking through Paul Ryan's legacy. The piece was actually animated by some of the Paul Ryan legacy pieces I've been seeing around, which seemed to primarily be about, did Paul Ryan do enough to criticize Donald Trump? And they took as a premise – Trump and Ryan were very different, but was Ryan courageous enough in the way he, uh, you know, attacked Trump or, or, or spoke about Trump's various uh, offenses? And I want to take a different tact and, and kind of judge Paul Ryan based on his own career and his own claims about what leadership will be. Ryan, of course, rocketed to public attention and to leadership of his own party as the anti-debt guy. I mean, he was a guy out there saying that we were going to become like Greece with people throwing Molotov cocktails in the streets and that he was, you know, this apostle of a new Republican Party that had learned from its mistakes in the George W. Bush years and was going to be fiscally responsible and was going to pay for spending and cut spending and even pay for its tax cuts. Ryan promised revenue neutral tax reform. And by the standards he offered, Paul Ryan has just been an abject failure. The statistic I like the most here as a way of thinking about it is in every single one of the five years before Paul Ryan became Speaker of the House, the deficit fell. Every year, year on year, the deficits fell, which is what you would expect. The economy was growing. In every year of the three years Ryan has been Speaker, deficits rose every single year. In total, they rose about $343 billion between 2015 and 2018. And I want to note here, I'm not particularly concerned about the deficit right now, although this is not the time or the reasons you would want the deficit rising necessarily. But what I am interested in is the way that Ryan really ran a post-truth politics that is, I think, as consequential and as clear as the kinds Donald Trump has run. And in many ways, I think one could argue that Ryan and people like him paved the way for Trump. And in this piece, and we can talk about it, I talk a little bit about my own history reporting on Paul Ryan and, you know, disagreed with Ryan, but took him, you know, basically at his word that he wanted to cut deficits and that his agenda was what he said it was. Um, And, you know, in the end, it wasn't. Um, So why don't I, I stop there? Like, I think that what we can say about Ryan is that He was supposed to come into office. He was supposed to lead the Republican Party into being one kind of thing. And he made it the opposite thing. He was less responsible, fiscally responsible, 
under his own definition than, say, John Boehner or, frankly, than um, Barack Obama. Yeah, and I, I think there's something important here because I, I saw some of the people, uh, conservatives you, you quoted in the piece, kind of shrugged this point off with a little bit of a, well, you know, I mean, like, he's just one guy. He's operating in a larger political system. He can't single-handedly control the outcomes. And I think it's important to remember the sort of conservative movement rebranding exercise that happened there in the early Obama years, right, which is that back in 2009, 2010, I think there was a general agreement. George W. Bush had become very unpopular, right? Democrats had won some very large congressional majorities. So if you just went to a newspaper and said, what I think is that George W. Bush's economic policies were completely perfect in all respects and I have no substantive disagreements with them, people would have written that article in a certain way, right? There would have been a kind of skepticism about that as a line. And the thing about Paul Ryan is that at a critical moment, right, at a moment when Bush was in a state of discredit and Republicans wanted to oppose Obama but not say, I just agree with everything George W. Bush did and if we take power, we will implement the exact same economic policies as George W. Bush, Ryan said he had something different happening, right? And what we've seen from Ryan over the past three years is that actually he has the same thing. Right? And we see from Arthur Brooks and, and others sort of defense of Ryan in your piece that they're all fine with that, right? And that like actually the movers and shakers in the conservative movement just don't think there was anything wrong with the way George W. Bush conducted policy, right? That cutting taxes in a regressive way, doing whatever is politically expedient on spending and broadly deregulating industry is fine, right? And it – is true that that ended in the worst recession uh, of the post-war era and that millions of people lost their jobs and that middle-class housing wealth was destroyed for a generation, but they don't think Bush did anything wrong at all, right? Like that's the story here. And if you had put it that way <laughs> back in 2010, right, like we want to take power back from the Democrats so we can do the exact same thing that has caused all this economic misery, like they would have had a real problem. So it was important to construe it as something different and new. And what we've seen is like there wasn't anything different and new. And like Donald Trump actually does have something a little bit different. But like Paul Ryan really doesn't. So I think something that's interesting is that Paul Ryan exists in a particular conservative context. You know, he started out at Empower America, which is an organization that later became renamed as Freedom Works. People may have heard of it. You know, he was working with Bill. Well, wait, if I haven't heard of Freedom Works, what what is it? It started out as a conservative political group that was founded in part by uh, David Koch and Charles Koch, which started as Citizens for a Sound Economy. And now it's basically a group of conservative libertarian advocacy groups that's based in D.C. And it trains volunteers and assistant campaigns and basically just gets involved in everything and was one of the major funders later in part of the Tea Party movement of, you know, obviously – Tea Party movement, there was both kind of the grassroots wing and then there was also kind of the funded wing of the Tea Party movement. But that's where Paul Ryan gets his start. Paul Ryan is there in like 1993. He's coming into 
D.C. in 1995, which is the Republican Revolution of Newt Gingrich taking power in the House and Republicans getting a majority and Republicans, you know, I was just reading a bunch of old uh, Weekly Standard columns from this time in 1995. And it ver- it's very similar to how conservatives talked in kind of 2010, 2014, or even 2016 of this, like, these are all the exciting things we can do with our newfound power and everything is going to be great. And we've got this great Newt Gingrich guy to lead us, you know, to the valley of success. But I think it's challenging for people who are outside of the conservative movement or who are observing it only on a part-time basis to see that the Paul Ryans of the world are coming from the same milieu of the same people with whom I think, Ezra, you would have a lot more disagreement from the jump. Paul Ryan made sense to a lot of people, I think, because he had the ability to sound as if he was equally informed on the same facts that you are, that he recognized the same problems and had just different solutions for them. But I don't know if that was entirely true. And I think that we saw time and time again in 2011, Paul Ryan won a Fisky Award for his interest in fiscal responsibility based on the Roadmap for America's Future Plan, which wasn't scorable, and he'd rejected the recommendations of the Debt Reduction Commission he served upon. And when uh, you know a journalist over at the New Republic asked about this, you know the people who give out the Fiskies were like, "Well, you know." This wasn't his best moment, but it seems like he's going to have more better moments. And it's just – it's interesting how there seems to be when people talk to people within the Republican Party or the conservative movement, there is an urge to like, okay, you know, we can identify with this person. This person makes sense because I feel as if we're talking about the same problems in the same way, but I don't know if that's true. So uh, a couple things. So some of this piece gets into sort of my history with him and, uh, you know, obviously Matt and I have argued about Paul Ryan on this show, but I I do think some of the – what was going on with Paul Ryan early on gets like misremembered now. The thing with Paul Ryan during that period, so like why did anybody take Paul Ryan's like rebranding seriously? Um, and like what even was it? Uh, and, and so what Ryan did was after the George W. Bush years where just Republicans kind of stopped <laughs> like making arguments or using math for their economic ideas. It was just like we'll spend whatever we want. We'll cut taxes whenever we want. And just like somebody will deal with it in the future. And somehow government will get smaller in the future. You know, Ryan came out and he began putting out these roadmap budgets. And the roadmap budgets were these extremely specific, particularly by the standards of an out-of-power backbench legislator documents that really laid out a pretty detailed vision for how Ryan wanted to achieve and ultimately how Republicans wanted to achieve their conservative governing agenda. Now, it wasn't detailed at every level. It wasn't as detailed as a presidential budget from like the Office of Management and Budget, but it's much more detailed than what you tend to see with um, out-of-power parties. Hmm. And so the the point was not that I uh, – I'll speak only for myself here. The thing with Ryan was that he was somebody who was saying specifically enough what he wanted to do that you could disagree with it. As opposed to some of like the like the clear skies and healthy forest stuff of the Bush era, you could say, okay, like you want to gut Medicare and privatize it. You want to gut Medicaid and block grant it. Like you want spending to go down on discretionary from whatever it was, 13% to 4%. Like that allows us to pin down your vision and have a discussion about it. 
you know, something I was talking to Bob Greenstein in, for this piece, who's the president of the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, and he's got this great line where he's like, the hard thing about Ryan for a lot of people is that you could have a conversation with him where he really does know what he's talking about. The idea, Jane, that he's not informed on what you're informed on, like, this is a fantasy. He's really quite smart. But, and like all the policy people who've argued with him, like Greenstein, will tell you that very quickly. But the thing that is true about him, the thing that kind of I'm getting at in this piece, is he doesn't care. Right. Having said all that, having written all that, when the chips are down, he will abandon everything he said. It's not that he doesn't know. Like Donald Trump, right, is a good example of somebody who says things that are wrong, like all the time. But very often does not appear to have any idea of what he's talking about. When Ryan abandons what his roadmap said, right, when he says, I'm going to do revenue neutral tax reform, then he pushes through tax reform that puts $1.5 trillion on the deficit and includes a bunch of gimmicks so that if you extended it, it would be $4 trillion over 20 years. He knows exactly what he's doing. And so this is what, one of the things I'm trying, to, I'm trying to hit at in this piece, which is that Ryan is a practitioner, much like Donald Trump is, of a post-truth politics. He, in, in this case, he's, he's a little bit like what Matt has termed a bullshitter, right, going off of the philosophical definition of bullshitting. Right. He's somebody who knows what he is saying is false and doesn't care. Or to be maybe generous to his defenders, he's someone who decided that other things were more important than the things he built his career on, like cutting taxes for corporations or whatever it might be. He just made other decisions about what mattered to prioritize a speaker. But this, it's not the case that, like, one, he doesn't know what he's talking about, or two, that that it was missed. The thing about him, and I think the thing that's really dangerous in the Republican Party right now, the thing that makes it hard to even know how to have a conversation about what it wants to do in a prospective way, is that there's a huge amount of bullshitting going on. And if people kind of come to you and say, hey, this is what we want to do. We've written it down. You can argue with it. Here are all of our arguments for it. Like, what do you think of them? And that just turns out they're not going to do any of that at all. They're going to do the opposite thing. It's like, well, what do you even do, like, as a reporter? Like, next time, like, Republicans say, here's our agenda for the next Congress, you just say, well, eh, you can't trust any of the words written down on paper here. But so, I think it's worth bearing in the specifics of Ryan and Medicare, actually, because mm-hmm. I was sort of looking back at the original roadmap, and some of it, like, the tax side of that roadmap was actually incredibly vague. That actually yeah. became more specific over the years, but it sort of started out as, like, kind of a joke. But what won him – like if you talk to the the people from the sort of professional debt reduction community, like they will say that like the reason they wanted to give Paul Ryan that Fisky Award, right, was that what they thought was appealing and like quote unquote honest or, or worth encouraging about Ryan is that he would say – in his budget document that the implication of Republican Party tax policy is that we need to enact big cuts in Medicare, right? That was like a point that had been obvious if you would sort of look at a spreadsheet but that nobody wanted to say politically because it's so explosive. And then Ryan sort of wrote it down in these roadmaps, right? Like the way we're going to make this small government vision of America work in the long run is we're going to have these big cuts to Medicare. But to me, the problem from Ryan from the beginning is that while he would take the Fisky Award to show that he was a courageous deficit hero and he loved the write-ups in various newspapers about how Paul Ryan was a budget math guy, he wouldn't actually take the political lumps, 
You know what I mean? Like from day one, when Democrats would start saying, aha, Paul Ryan admits that the implication of this tax policy is that to keep taxes on the rich low, we're going to have to have huge cuts in senior citizens' health care benefits, he would get really, really slippery. Right? Like right away, starting with the 10-year implementation delay. And he wound up talking PolitiFact into labeling the idea that he was proposing huge cuts in the elimination of Medicare as like the lie of the year. Right? And this was like how I got so mad about Paul Ryan because like it would be one thing to have a Republican who was pretending that – he didn't intend huge cuts in programs to senior citizens. Or it would be another thing to have a Republican who was courageously admitting the unpopular fiscal realities of their agenda. But Ryan was like having it both ways seven different times where he was both being lauded for courage. But like the press was like so invested in the courageousness of Paul Ryan that they then wanted to shield him from any kind of political blowback. And this is like the foundation stone. I I mean, I think sort of like how you got Trump stuff gets overblown. But the cornerstone of the modern Republican Party coalition is this idea that you can both have these like huge tax cuts for plutocrats and also a political party whose base is cranky old people who benefit from a generous welfare state and also that Barack Obama is bankrupting the country with debt. And like it's Ryan who – put this together even while garnering praise for for blowing it up somehow. So I think – And like he's still to this day, right? Like he's not saying – like exit interview, right? There are no political costs. Like Paul Ryan could say anything at all and it has no electoral implications for him. And like he will not say, I think this big regressive tax cut that we enacted is good and to make it work in the long term, old people will need to get less generous health care benefits. Like he's still out there denying the very thing that he got praised for admitting. Right. And I think that I want to go back to my earlier comments. It's challenging when we're talking about kind of this post-truth era. And I think what I meant more is that it's not that, you know, Paul Ryan does not know what he's talking about. He knows what he is talking about based on a series of facts that are different from the series of facts, I think, that other people use. And I think that one example and, you know, kind of going off of Matt's point about this idea of kind of being praised for courage while not doing anything, if anyone remembers during the presidential campaign, there was the moment in which Trump criticized uh, Judge Curiel by saying that, you know, this Hispanic American judge could not properly rule on this because he was Hispanic American. And Paul Ryan said that's the textbook example of a racist comment. And then Paul Ryan proceeded to do absolutely nothing about it. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting because I feel as if Paul Ryan, for many people, is kind of a one-way window into what the Republican Party is thinking. And I think that that got him a lot of praise and plaudits because he was able to parse out Republicanese in a way that made sense in to you, Ezra, or to others by talking about, you know, these issues in just a way that seemed to be similar to how Democrats were talking about it. But he didn't mean any of that. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, not to even just make this all about Ezra, because like <laughs> the, the, the most ridiculous Paul Ryan coverage had nothing to do with this early episode and was like the poverty tour oh, stuff, right? Yeah. Which like McKay Coppins is a fantastic reporter and has done like a lot of great pieces about the Republican Party in that era. Like he produced a 
just like absurd article about how Paul Ryan was like really concerned about poverty now when like precisely because Paul Ryan had produced all these budget documents. Like you could tell how much Paul Ryan cared about poverty. And like what he cared about poverty was that unlike programs for old people that were going to have large long-term cuts with delayed implementations, programs to help poor people were going to have much bigger cuts implemented right away. Right, like the through line in everything Paul Ryan has ever done yep. is just like devastating attack on the interests of poor people. Right, and then like he spent six weeks visiting soup kitchens or something, and like multiple news outlets like wrote this thing about how much he cared about poor people, and it and it baffles me, you know, because like anybody can kind of pull a fast one, right? Like, there's no way to predict the future or, like, what you're going to do when the chips are down on a Simpson-Bowles commission or something like that. Right. But, like, it's very easy to tell whether a veteran House member, member of leadership, and a guy who's produced multiple budget documents, like, how high a priority he puts on helping poor people. And, like, Ryan just, you know, like, he, he didn't. And that's fine. It's also normal. Like, Republicans... They don't really care about programs to help poor people. And I think that's something we know. But there was like so much eagerness to believe that there was some contrarian thing. I think people wanted a bridge. People want a bridge to understand or to think about different political parties in a means that makes sense to them. And the challenge is, you know, that this does not need to become this conversation, is that Paul Ryan deeply believes in the conceptualization of conservatism that he's been a part of since the early 1990s. And that is one in which you can go to soup kitchens and witness poverty firsthand and see have people come up to you who talk about, who show you the track marks on their arms because they are finally dealing with an addiction to heroin. And his thought is, if only these systems were privatized because government intervention in these systems is always bad. And the reaction that most people or other people would have to that is, boy, I wish the government were better at dealing with this to prevent this from ever happening in the first place. And there is a barrier there. But I want to sharpen this a bit because I actually think the poverty stuff really puts a a sharp point on it. So Paul Ryan went through that like somewhat ridiculous poverty tour um, and he came out the other side, not just with his normal, like, let's privatize all of the programs, but he came out the other side with a proposal to expand the earned income tax credit to childless adults, a $60 oh, yeah. billion dollar yeah. proposal that, you know, I would say like Dylan Matthews, sort of no Paul Ryan fan, like wrote up and, you know, like that was like a real thing. It was very similar, actually, to the Obama administration's proposal. And then here's what happened. The Obama administration tried repeatedly to get Ryan to pass this thing he supported, and he wouldn't. And then Ryan became speaker and Republican um, became president. And Ryan could have passed it at any moment at any time. He could have attached it to the tax bill. He could have attached it to the spending bill. He could have attached it to anything. And he didn't. So one of the the questions I want to raise here is there are a lot of different things people don't like in Paul Ryan coverage. But the, the thing that I struggle with when I look back at my own coverage of Paul Ryan I never like I don't agree with Paul Ryan. I obviously come from a very different kind of philosophic approach on government programs. I thought it was useful to argue with Paul Ryan and like use his stuff as a way of like conceptualizing what the Republican Party was. But the thing I did in that was assume that like if Paul Ryan wrote down an EITC proposal that came out on his office's letterhead, that he supported that proposal. The thing I, I did and that a lot of people did, the thing that is a normal thing within 
politics, right? Political journalism is when people say like, this is what my office's policy proposal is. You're like, okay, well, that's what it is. Like, is that a good idea? Like, should it pass? Like, does it have votes, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, you know, Donald Trump, has a lot of this too, right? He'll come out, people sort of, we all apply kind of discounting to anything Donald Trump says, but he'll come out and say, you know, I'm not a traditional Republican. I'm going to have a plan where everybody has health insurance. I think a lot of us looked at that and said, no, you're not. But I think that's like a much sharper version of the question, or in some ways, an easier version of the question that Ryan himself poses, which is, the thing that someone like Paul Krugman or honestly, Matt, you, you know, the, the thing that I am saying you guys were right about and that I was wrong about, we all had the same opinions, more or less. Like we don't have very different opinions on social programs and we don't have very different opinions on Ryan's social programs. In some ways, like we were all very deep into the same critique of them. But what was happening with, say, uh, you, you or Paul was that, you know, you look back at, at Ryan's performance under George W. Bush, where he voted for the tax cuts, where he voted for Medicare Part D, where he voted, he had a social security privatization scheme that was so expensive, the Bush administration itself rejected it as irresponsible. And you guys said, look, that's his history. This rebranding is bullshit. Like, we're not going to take it seriously. Um, And like, to the extent that there is evidence within it, like that he's underestimating the cost of his own tax cuts, like that is evidence that like what he is saying is just flim flam, like Paul Krugman always called him a charlatan. And like me, sort of like as a slightly more traditional political reporter, looked at it and said, well, here are what the guy's political policy proposals are. Here's how they work. Here's like what the spreadsheet says. Like we could kind of argue with that. But on some level, like you can only argue with the agenda people say they have. And I think that the question about how to cover the Republican Party right now, I think the question of that is raised by like the history of Paul Ryan's EITC proposal, which could have happened in two different political configurations and never did, is just how do you even think about Republican Party policy plans in this era or in any era, right? Like is the only thing to do to kind of um, – you know, you go back and you say the party will do what it has always done until like there is literal hard evidence of it making the actual choice to do something different, not just proposing it when out of power, but actually passing it in power. You know, Paul Ryan started the tax proposal process with a revenue neutral tax plan. It had this big border adjustment tax in it. But when that proved politically difficult, he just took it out. And Matt, you wrote a great piece on the tax plan's original sin and just never replaced it with anything. Like, I think the the question that is raised here is what happens, like, not when, like, a Republican is articulating conservatism. Right. But when a Republican is articulating conservatism, you know, a kind of hard choice conservatism, but you suspect they're not going to follow it. Like, how do you how do you report on that? Like, how do you how do you talk about a world in which people's words are just not in any way a useful guide to what they're going to do? Yes, it is challenging. <laughs> no, but I mean, I, so I think you know, we, it is a hard question, and I think that where a lot of this winds up going wrong, right, is that there is a powerful impulse to want to say that. You know, there's like – there's two parties. There's two ideological camps and there's just like intense both external and internal pressure on people who cover politics to posit symmetries between the political coalitions in the United States of America. And that creates a powerful desire to want to say, ah, the budget hawks in both parties are doing blah, 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 whereas – the extremists on the base are doing blah, 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 blah. But like there is just so much evidence of asymmetry, like many, many different asymmetries between the Democratic and Republican parties in organizational terms, in terms of their internal diversity, things like that. And that just like there's a conservative movement running the Republican Party that has absolutely no 
internal disagreement on the question of cutting taxes for rich people, right? And like the conservative movement, that that's just like is what it does. And like you would know if there was a Republican who did not put an absolute priority on cutting taxes for rich people because they would be drummed out. So, and like Paul Ryan was not drummed out. There was no point at which Paul Ryan lost his primary and was never heard from again. And, and like that's how you can tell. And you can tell like the reason no senators and no House members and no president and nobody at any level anywhere in Republican Party politics challenges the absolute priority cutting taxes on the rich is like that is the the function of the American conservative movement. Like its sole purpose is to do that. They don't trade that off against any goals, not abortion, not deficit reduction, not anything at all, not any of them at all on any level. And if you just assume at all times that that's what Republicans are going to do, you will be right like always for the past 20 years. And like maybe someday there will be a single vote the other way, but like, nah. So I want to get back to something, Ezra, that you brought up talking about how to report on conservative politics and not on this issue, which I think is a fascinating one, but I think that there's a a similar one taking place right now. It's the debate over criminal justice reform, and it is an intra-conservative Donnybrook that the likes of which I have not seen in a long time. And I think a specific figure involved in this would be someone like Senator Ted Cruz, who for whom even conservatives think it's very strange the degree to which he waffles back and forth on conservative justice reform. And it all happens to take place generally when he's up for election. And if anyone remembers, during his race against Beto O'Rourke, his account tweeted out a video of Beto O'Rourke remarking on the murder of Botham Jean, who is a young black man who was murdered in his own apartment by a police officer who is best excuse was that she walked into the wrong apartment. And Better Work is giving the speech about how police violence is wrong and we need to find all the answers. And Cruz's tweet was something like, yo, just watch this or something like that. And people did watch it and were like, we don't understand what you're talking about. And there was a great piece in The American Conservative about how Ted Cruz's interest in criminal justice reform is impossible to count on. And yet with the First Step Act, which is apparently it's, it will go to a vote this year, Mitch McConnell just said so, Ted Cruz is like, ah, yes, uh, you know, I'm this champion of criminal justice reform, a champion of criminal justice reform who was not a champion of criminal justice reform two months ago. And so I think that with issues of import when we're talking about criminal justice reform or we're talking about Medicaid, the waters that move conservative politics are very destabilizing, and it, which is why you can have an issue like the First Step Act, which is literally, you know, it's putting Tom Cotton and Mike Lee against each other. It's putting the White House and the Heritage Foundation on one side versus like – CRTV and The Blaze and a lot of outlets that get a lot of attention on Mm -hmm. Facebook and Twitter from regular folks who are now convinced that Mike Lee thinks that escaped prisoners are going to give fentanyl to your toddlers. And it's interesting to see how within conservative politics, I would disagree that there is no monolithic attitude, but there is a sensibility that you are always unsure of where you're going because you are attempting to go after a base you do not entirely understand. And I think First Step is a terrific example of that. And we start to see that a little bit in how Paul Ryan responded to Trump. Okay, well, I, I think we do need to take a break, and I and I want to zoom out a little bit from yeah. Paul Ryan and talk about the deficit moment. The deficit moment. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. 
With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. So, Ezra, when when you were sort of introducing this, right, I mean, one of the things you said was that the deficit has been going up since Paul Ryan became speaker. And another thing you said, which which I think is correct, is that it hasn't actually been a problem that the deficit's been going up, right? It's like a problem for Paul Ryan's self-image and his presentation to the world and an indication of his priorities. But, like, my life is fine. Your life is fine. The American economy has continued to get better. And this, to me, is what's most consequential. I mean, it's it's one thing to sort of complain about, you know, one politician's media coverage, right? But there was this intense moment of deficit hysteria. Like, you could not go a day in 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013 without reading stories, like overwhelming consensus among the great and the good in American politics that we had to reduce the deficit, we had to take action on this, that we would grasp its straws to praise people for wanting to do it. And the minute Donald Trump became president, all of that pressure to reduce the deficit, not just from Ryan personally, but from the business community, largely even from the deficit reduction advocacy community, like, all went away and – And from the press. From the press, right. Like that's I think a huge part of this. Right. There was open partisan cheerleading yeah. in the middle of the Obama administration for deficit reduction. There was elements of the Obama administration, big elements of the congressional Democratic Party were alarmed about the deficit. Republicans were pretending to care. The business community was. And like millions of people wound up spending – years unemployed because of this, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I think sometimes people are too reluctant to give Trump credit for economic improvements since he took office. Like, what happened is that Donald Trump took office, and then we enacted a lot of fiscal stimulus, and then we had exactly the results that proponents of fiscal stimulus have been saying. Like, it it is true. It has not miraculously ended all economic problems in America, but, like, it helped more people get jobs more quickly. Like, And so much destabilization in America, right? Like if you want to know why have so many grassroots conservatives turned against like 
free trade and if you want to know why so many grassroots Democrats have started putting like red rose emojis next to their their Twitter and stuff, it's because like quote unquote capitalism seemed to be failing there in the Obama years. But like the reason it was failing was this mania about deficits that the people who were pushing the mania have all like sidled away from but without admitting that they changed their minds. And like it drives me – I mean it drives me nuts. And oh, like, totally. And like that's how Ryan became such a like hyped figure. You know, I mean he, he was not the cause of it but he was a symptom of this much bigger thing. Well, it, it, there there are a bunch of things here, and and by the way, like I tried to talk to a lot of like deficit world that was praising Ryan back then, and oh my god, they're like they they they're like they don't want to go put on into the, the caterpillar drive. It's like yeah, it's they're just like they like kind of like disappeared from the conversation in in this way. One of it for me is like I spent so much time, and Matt, I know you did too, in those years, just like arguing about why this was dumb, right? Arguing that this was not when you reduce the deficit, arguing these, uh, there was this whole thing, it's easy to forget now, but there's this multi-year panic about the idea that uncertainty about the path of future deficits was stopping the business community from investing. That like, because they're worried about the future, like would there be tax increases or spending cuts in the future? They were not going to invest now. And like spent endless amounts of time like debating this point. You know, with, again, Ryan, you know, running around with these, like, graphs of, like, blood red debt, like, going up into a 2075 projection. And the amount of energy that got wasted on this and also, like, the bad policy that came out of it was really was really profound. And then all, all the people who were effectively prosecuting this argument, like, just stopped. And one of the, the frustrations that I think people who care about this issue have, right, the, the people who are, who are honestly, like, deficit hawks is that – there's something psychological about the way people worry about the deficit. When the economy is bad, high deficit numbers somehow conflate into, like, badness. And so it's like the economy is going bad. People are more sensitive to high deficit numbers. Like, the press is willing to, like, report on that more, you know, kind of on and on down the line. And so people get more worried about it. But when the economy is bad is exactly when you want to be doing a lot of deficit spending. And when the economy is good, at least under sort of traditional models, you don't want to. But when the economy is good, people just don't care about the deficit. It doesn't bother them. The fact that the deficit is going up is not a big issue in American politics. Like the press isn't outraged. The other thing that I, I do want to say on the press is that there's a lot of talk about media bias. Um, and yet as a media liberal or as a conservative or and you know there like there are some things where the media I do think has a bias. I think the media is culturally liberal in a lot of ways. I think it's you know the media centered in big cities. You know, I think it, it believes in immigration. It you know there are a bunch of things it believes in. But what it also believes in, like one thing the media is biased towards is deficit reduction. Like it is somehow believed to be a nonpartisan, non-ideological stance that reducing the deficit is good. And like the media is lockstep sympathetic to and on the side of like budget hawkery in a way it would never be on the side of like Medicare for all, which, by the way, would probably long term reduce the deficit, at least if you did it sharply. And so like this is like a real, I think, problem in asymmetry. But the other asymmetry, like the thing that worries me, among others, is that Republicans, I think, one of the patterns we've seen here, and the thing I think Ryan's past history in the 
uh, last decade really shows is Republicans weaponize a deficit to stop Democrats from spending money when Democrats are in power. And then when Republicans are in power, they blow up the deficit. And then Democrats have to, like, do this work because, like, Republicans in the media ally to make it a big problem. So then Democrats get back into power and they can't, like, implement any of their programs or effectively respond to a recession because everybody's concerned about the deficit that the Republicans created or at least enlarged a couple of years back. It's a really toxic and dysfunctional dynamic. Yeah, I, I agree with that. The the only thing I want to say, though, is that it's it's actually Democrats who weaponize the deficit against themselves. You, you know what I mean? Because I – Well, I, some, yes. Du- I mean during the Trump tax cut debate, I heard a lot of like that exact complaint from Democrats, from veterans of the Obama administration. You know, for example, would be like – Oh, after these guys like stopped us from doing X, Y, and Z, like now they're going to make the deficit bigger and they're going to make it a millstone around our necks next time we govern. But like Democrats were just governing in 2009, 2010. And it's true that Republicans teamed up with the media to put all this deficit shame on them. But like you always have the option as a governing party of saying, fuck you. Like, we're not going to do that. And then when our policies are implemented, we will be vindicated. And they didn't, right? Like, it was Democrats who insisted on a party-line vote of making the Affordable Care Act an anti-stimulative, deficit-reducing program. It was Obama who called in a joint session of Congress for belt-tightening It's true that Republicans were hypocrites, but Republicans are like honest hypocrites about the government, right? Like if you don't pay attention to the crazy lies that they're telling, they have actually a very consistent set of fiscal priorities that they pursue in a sensible and efficacious way. Whereas like it's Democrats who I never know what they're doing, right? It's like when Democrats are in power, they believe that it is politically imperative to reduce the deficit. But when Republicans are in power, Democrats believe that Republicans' habit of increasing deficits is like a political genius move that is being unfairly inflicted on them. And it's like they need to get their own shit together (laughs) and like understand, A, like what do they believe about the relationship of fiscal policy to the macroeconomy and public opinion? And B, like what are their goals in terms of the budget? And like there's a lot of dysfunctional elements to how Republicans govern. But like the functional element is that they have clarity on those points. Like they know what they are doing and why and when. And I always feel like Democrats are are out to sea. And it's like it it bothers me that like years into this, like Democrats are so bothered by how they get yanked around by Republicans, but like they don't they don't like have a meeting and say like, okay, like this is what we're gonna do. I would add a couple, I think, wrinkles to that. One is that I'm very interested to see how the next Democratic majority, assuming there is one, governs. Because there were a lot of hinge votes in, you know, the 2009-2010 period. Like, people forget this because the politics of even the Democratic caucus have changed a lot. But, like, the hinge votes for Obamacare were Ben Nelson and Joe Lieberman. Sure. And, like, Ben Nelson, like, this very conservative Democrat from Nebraska and Joe Lieberman, who by that point was functionally a Republican out to get liberals. And – that mattered, right? Like they like they were negotiating with something real in their party. And so, you know, there was some mix of like 
honest assessment of like what, you know, people like Barack Obama and Larry Summers and Tim Geithner and Jason Furman thought the situation was. And then also like negotiation with a party where like they needed to get these conservative Democrats on board. And among the prices for that, according to the conservative Democrats, were that, uh, you know, the thing had to be paid for all the way and even reduce the deficit in the long run. And you had, you know, you had Peter Orzag there. And so then there's this other question of like, what do they actually believe? And I do think what they believe is changing a little bit. And I think there are different camps. I think there's like a big camp of the Democrats who believed and and probably still believe that deficits matter, maybe not as much as people were saying they do in 2010, but in the long run, they do matter at least somewhat. And you want to be doing, you know, kind of countercyclical stimulus in the short term. Um, But that means right now you'd be you'd be reducing the deficit at least somewhat. And in the long term, you need to worry about entitlements and taxes and all and all the other things. And then there's also a strengthening part of the party. You know, you might associate this with like Stephanie Kelton and modern monetary theorists. But I think you also just have it around a lot of the kind of democratic socialist part of the party that just says they just don't matter that much. Like whatever the theory is, like it's not the thing to worry about now. So we won't worry about it now. And if like it comes to be true in some point in the future that somebody does need to worry about this, like then we will worry about it at some point in the future. And so I do think that like Democrats, they had a theory in 2010 that, you know, Like what they wanted to do was spend more then, right? They wanted to increase spending then and have long-term deficit reduction. And depending on what you think about deficits in the long term, like either the long-term deficit reduction or debt reduction of that is like not that important or um, it is that important. But either way, like they were on the side of spending more then in general. But also now, like I think a mixture of anger at the Republicans and changes in just like how the party actually sees deficits. I mean, I've talked to a bunch of those kind of like senior Democratic economists and, you know, they've said like they've been surprised, like they've been surprised there hasn't been more reaction in the bond market. They've been surprised to see how calm everything has been as Republicans keep spending, even as the economy strengthens. And so I'm not sure the Democratic Party won't be in in a different space on this. But if the legislation is going to be different to the point you're making, Matt, then it's going to have to be different because of those like five or six or seven or ten Democrats on like the like the right edge of the Senate majority or the right edge of the House majority change their views about what is politically important for them. Right. Yeah, it's interesting because I think that when you talk to conservatives about this specific issue, it's interesting how much this has to do with existing relationships with corporate America. And it, it, I think you see that when you saw um, after the tax bill was passed, you saw, you know, reporters for Town Hall who would just keep sharing that, like, this company is going to spend all of this money to do these things all because of the tax bill. And then when you talk to them about deficit issues, it was just like, that's not even a thing we need to contemplate. And I just, I was not deep in the weeds in 2010 as I was living in St. Louis and doing something entirely different with my life. But it is interesting to see how the deficit as a priority for Republicans has virtually disappeared. You know, it's something that comes up every once in a while, but it's something that like, you know, Grover Norquist is now more interested in talking about vaping. And the Tea Party activists are now fully on Team Trump. And the idea of deficits that was such a driving force or just the the idea of like, you know, you're spending this country into oblivion. There was such an issue in 2010 and 2011 for much of the Tea Party. It's interesting because that specific base has now entirely moved on to supporting a president who is a huge fan of deficits and debt. Yeah, well, and so to put my cards on the table, right, like 
I think the way you have to think about this, right, is, look, is the thing you're proposing doing actually worth doing, right? And if you do think it's worth doing, right, if you think that this new program to build uh, roads or this new program to make it cheaper for people to go to college or this new program to subsidize the purchase of rooftop solar, right, whatever it is, if you think it's really important, right, then it's worth doing by any means necessary. And if that means you do it by raising taxes or if it means you do it by some offsetting cut to some other program that you don't think is good or if it means you do it by borrowing money, then like whatever, right? It's like you do what you have to do to get it done. But in contrary, like your willingness to do something is super duper sensitive to the question of how much of it is offset and exactly by how much, like what you were really saying to yourself is that you lack confidence in the underlying program, right? And the reason Republicans, and I think rightly, are so devious about their pursuit of like corporate tax cuts is that they really believe in the corporate tax cuts, right? Like I don't agree with them about how beneficial or important corporate tax cuts are, but that is the correct logical way to behave with regard to a costly but important initiative. And you see that Democrats and Republicans alike buy into this when it comes to the like endless war spending where – They are saying to themselves – I mean, again, one can disagree on the merits, but like they are saying, look, we need to fund this war in Afghanistan. It is important to our national security. And therefore, the question of how you offset it or whether you offset it is like not that significant, right? And if you're into the world of haggling about offsets, that's saying you just don't actually think this thing you're talking about will be that beneficial, right? Because then the merits of it wind up being highly sensitive. And I think so many more moderate Democrats like have a kind of – I don't know exactly how to put it. But it's like they're trying to avoid saying either yes or no to like big progressive initiatives, right? So it's like someone will say, we should do this awesome thing. And then they'll be like, aha, but how are you going to pay for that? And then when someone comes up with a way to pay for it, they'll be like, aha, that's politically untenable. But it's like – Really, the issue is like, well, okay, well, is like, is this a good idea, right? Or, or isn't it, right? But instead, there's this like self-induced paralysis around the financing as a way to avoid joining, like the basic question of like, is it a really big deal that we have a sky-high child poverty rate, or is it like, eh, I don't really care, and that to me is like is like the issue here. It's like, what do you really, really, really care about? Because I have never seen a member of Congress who like legitimately throws down like deficit reduction uber alles and there's (laughs) literally nothing they will vote for that increases the deficit. And, you know, that I think is just the ultimate lesson here. Like there's – nobody is that hawkish on the budget and like nor should anyone be. So let's take a break then and come to our white paper. Absolutely. Okay, we have today Minimum Wage, EITC, and Criminal Recidivism by Amanda Agon and Michael Makowski. So this is a paper that looks at state minimum wage increases, also EITCs, and it finds that criminal recidivism goes down when states increase their minimum wages, particularly goes down for like drug crimes and property crimes where you might make money. And they also find that when states increase their EITC, recidivism goes down, but only for women, mostly because only women get EITC. 
it's sort of superficially a crime paper about how if you give people better labor market opportunities, crime will go down. But what I think is actually really interesting is its implications for the minimum wage because instead of looking directly at the question of, oh, does this cost jobs, it just looks at, okay, do labor market outcomes for this very vulnerable group of people, like reentering prisoners, oh, that's interesting. do they get better yeah. or worse? And it shows that in the aggregate, it is better, right? It is better to be a ex-con in a state that just hiked its minimum wage than to be one who didn't. Right. And that's really powerful evidence that I think actually gets beyond some of the statistical nitpicking that dominates this debate. So I do want to stay for a minute on the the crime paper part yeah. of this because I do think it's interesting. We have a – I think a very unsettled concept of like what we want to have happen with people who have committed crimes, been convicted for them in this country. Yes. This idea like maybe prison is punishment, maybe it's rehabilitation. But certainly when people get out of prison, we want them to stop doing crimes and, and, and go into formal labor market or, or otherwise live a law-abiding life. But we make it incredibly difficult. We make it incredibly difficult um, for them to get hired. And there are all kinds of reasons for this, and some of them are not really the government's fault. I mean, it's reasonable on some level for private employers to want to know, and if that's not made illegal, they're going to ask. And there's like all kinds of debate over like, do you want to make it illegal or not? But what they show here is like there's another way to address this, which is to try to make job opportunities in the legal markets, both like more plentiful and more appealing. You know, so um, my wife, Annie Lowry, wrote a great piece on guaranteed job programs for The Atlantic a couple months ago. And for the piece, she actually looked at this program, and I've, I've forgotten now where it's happening, but it's a, a program funded with funded with government money, which is creating basically a guaranteed job for people who get out of prison. And I recognize that the politics of, like, a jobs guarantee, but only for ex-cons, would be terrible. But, like, as a policy, you think, oh, like, that makes a lot of sense. Like, you, you need to make sure these people have jobs. Like, it's really, it's a delicate moment where, like, they've been disattached from the labor market for years. It's really important to society that they get back into it. And yet we really tend to just turn them out with nothing. And so, I don't know, I, I think that this is a paper and it, it, it joins a larger literature suggesting we need to think more radically about this. We have we give so much thought, maybe it's not good thought, but it is a lot of attention to how to put people into prison and so much less attention to how to like let them out of prison and like get them back into the labor force and like create a situation where recidivism doesn't happen or happens as little as possible. Um, if you did that, you would have a lot less crime and society. A lot of crime comes from repeat offenders. Uh, but we don't we don't think about it clearly. We don't think about it humanely. And we don't even think about it. Our desire for punishment gets in the way of our own, I think, as a society, even self-interest. And I think this paper sort of suggests that there, are, that there are other ways we could think about it. So I think one of the interesting issues with recidivism and is that there's there's a lot of internal debate on that very subject on like because I think one of the ideas with that program that you brought up Ezra or the idea of when people get out of prison in the first place is that people will have gotten out of prison who have done bad things and I think that that is something that you're seeing with the debate between say right on crime and Charles Koch Institute versus some like right wing pundits is that you know people will have left prison who did things like sell fentanyl or committed like an armed robbery or committed murder, in fact. And I feel like that very issue of, you know, what to do with people who would have actually committed crimes is something I know that sounds relatively simplistic, but it's actually extremely divisive within kind of the criminal justice reform community about what to do with people who committed actual real deal crimes. 
All right. And with that, I'm uh, going to wrap up uh, another episode of The Weeds. Uh, check us out in the Weeds Facebook group if you have more to say or send us an email at weedsatbox.com. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. Thanks to our producer, Griffin Tanner, and The Weeds will return on Friday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.